Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of Over the Line. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I have two special guests with us. I've got Shane Turcott from Steel Image and Bob Latino from the Reliability Center. Shane has recently released a book called Decoding Mechanical Failures. This is a must-read for any maintenance and reliability practitioner. This book dives deep into the science of fractography and teaches you what your equipment is telling you after it has broken. It is a great reference and should be on everybody's shelf. And if you're investigating failed equipment, bring this book along with you. In this episode, we talk about Shane's book, but we also talk about the process of doing an RCA, the steps needed, how to save parts, how to package them up and ship them to a lab for proper analysis, when you should look at sending to a lab versus just relying on what you can see from your in-person analysis. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've had on this show. I really enjoyed the conversation, and these two guests are truly experts in failure. And now, a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll jump right into the episode. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, Star West Petroleum. Having personally worked with Star West in a previous job, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management. And with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top tier distributor of Phillips 66 lubricants, Kendall Performance Motor Oils, Phillips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from Star West is clear and marked gasoline and diesel, heating and furnace oil. But really, it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the Star West team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm Steve Doby, your host, and today I've got with me Shane Turcott from Steel Image. Welcome to the show, Shane. And then I've also got uh, Bob Latino from the Reliability Center. We've seen Bob on the show a few times, um, and we actually had an episode with Bob just just a few weeks ago, and this is kind of a continuation on that. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about RCAs, and in particular, uh, the mechanical failure side. So Shane has recently put out a new book um, called Decoding Mechanical Failures. And so we want to dig in a bit with Shane to... I'm doing understand. the plug. I'm doing the plug here. <laughs> yeah, I've got it too. <laughs> um, so we want to dig in a bit with Shane on, on his book and what's in there and how people in our, our industry doing RCAs and, and failure analysis can really take this um, information and put it into work in in their workplace. So thank you guys for having you on the show. But before we get started, uh, I did a bit of an introduction, but Shane, do you want to 
tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, hey, Steve, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so, so, you know, my, my background is I'm a metallurgical engineer. Uh, I spent all my career working in laboratories supporting metallurgical failure analysis um, and, and reliability problems. Uh, I started working at a, at a steel mill, moved into turbines, moved into regular failure analysis. And in 2009, I started Steel Image, a metallurgical failure analysis company based here in Canada. Um, and at this point, we do about two thirds of the refining capacity, uh, a, lot of, a lot of mining and a lot of energy in, in, this, in this part of North America. Oh, that's excellent, Shane. Bob, I think the audience knows you pretty well by this point, but uh, why don't you give them a little bit of uh, information? I'm pretty sure they're tired of hearing me, Steve. <laughs> it's like, but Steve can't find anybody else. And they got to keep pulling this guy Bob in there. <laughs> well, whenever we're talking I'm, about failure, I, I know the guy to bring in. <laughs> that's it, yeah. <laughs> my, my mother's so proud. Yeah. <laughs> my son made a living off of failure. Uh, I'm CEO of a company called Reliability Center Incorporated, uh, just a couple hours south of Washington, D.C., uh, we're a 48-year-old um, reliability consulting company that specializes in equipment process and human reliability with a uh, specialization in the area of root cause analysis using a, uh, our proprietary approach would be called uh, PROACT. So uh, I will yield back to you, Steve. <laughs> awesome. So just to, to dive into today's topic, like I I'm really want to center this around your book, Decoding Mechanical, Mechanical Failures. Why don't we start with a quick hypothetical scenario? And so uh, I'm going to get Bob and, and yourself to walk through the process that we should follow when we have a failure and how we can, right from the get-go, right from the moment that the piece of equipment fail, fails to getting the end root cause actions and putting them in place so kind of the whole spectrum let's just say we're we're in a a copper mill and we've got uh, a pump that's just one of the big feed water pumps and we fail we fail the input shaft now where do we start bob well, I mean, I'll, I'll just start from mine and then i'm going to yield to uh, to shane because the the I mentioned PROACT as a methodology before, and uh, if you look at any investigative occupation, they all have the same steps. Everybody's just got a different acronym for marketing purposes. So that when you look at PROACT, the, the, the PR, the first step in any investigation for us is going to be the preservation of the evidence. The O is going to be, that, then I got to put a, an analysis team together, and I got to worry about biasness and that stuff. The, the A is going to be the analyzing and reconstruction of that event using that evidence and the team. The C is gonna be communicating our findings and uh, recommendations so that something gets done about it. And then T is tracking for bottom line results so that you know that whatever I did, something's gotta get better. So we gotta be able to prove it. Now, step one in that scenario that you're tell, uh, you were talking about, Steve, is uh, you know it's true like in any crime show that you see. You, you, for us, you're putting the crime scene, the tape around the crime scene. You, you got to preserve the stuff that's failed. And in our preservation uh, step, we we call it the five P's, but it, it's a memory jogger for five categories of evidence. It's parts, position, people, paper, and paradigms. So, you know, obviously one of the keys to uh, getting it before it gets thrown away <laughs> is going to be uh, having the, the field have an appreciation for what the failed parts mean to a metallurgist like Shane. 
So, I mean, the, you know, and, and that's not saying that people are uh, mean spirited and they're throwing it away to keep it away from people like Shane. It's just that it's part of a cleanup operation to hurry up and get back running. So those kind of the, the evidence, that's like going to the crime scene and, uh, you know, having the uh, cleaning people come and <laughs> clean up the site before the investigators get there. So, uh, you know, there's got to be a, uh, a disciplined way of being able to preserve all of that, those failed parts, talking to people, getting the documentation on the failure histories, getting the OEM data and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to go to Shane now and say, OK, that, that just happened. And what, what is ideal for you to occur uh, so that you can do the, the best job you can do? Okay, so um, I think that a lot of people would be surprised by how much information you can get from that failed part. Um, and there's a couple stages of that. So, you know, I, I've written the book, Decoding Mechanical Players, because I believe that the people who are there hands-on, seeing the problem, tearing things down, most familiar with equipment, should have the basics to being able to look at a broken shaft and, and immediately getting information from it that's gonna be helpful for the remainder of their investigation. So that's phase one. And I think that those skills have to be brought into reliability and those people who are, you know, leading the repair, making the decisions on how to, how to best put things back together, have that right away. Uh, and then those people who are leading the investigation uh, have the ability to at least do a preliminary triage of those failed parts, that failed shaft, and come back and say, hey, I, I, can see, I can see what some of the problems may be. And then I may decide to continue to phase number two to get even more information, that would be sending it to a laboratory like ourselves that will come back and give you everything from, you know, the, the failure mode shafts, of course, you know, fatigue is your primary failure, but, but also to the clues, because when you have a shaft failure, you're looking for the clues as to, well, what was that source of loading? Was it a problem that was amongst the stationary components, such as a, a bearing having gone, a misalignment? Do I have a problem amongst the rotating assembly, uh, such as problems with couplings? I haven't accommodated for thermal expansion properly. Um, is there torsional issues? Um, that can all be picked up from the fracture surface, whether you know trained by someone on site or sent to a lab. But the lab will also be able to add in more stuff, more details, such as um, was it was the shaft made to print? Was the shaft you know the, the proper material, proper strength? Were the the dimensions and geometries of the area where the crack starts from were those relevant as well? Um, yeah. So so in summary, is, is Bob? I fully agree. Step number one is you have to preserve and document all that information. And then you have to appreciate how much information can be gained from that shaft failure to be, that could be gained from your own team with the proper training, or if need be from a, from a laboratory that can, with all the tools available to them, can give you as much information as humanly possible. Steve, am I allowed to ask, can I ask him a question? You can ask as many as you like. <laughs> well, only, only easy ones though. I, I don't I don't mind just sitting here silent and listening to you guys talk all day. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to get into the, the details of, of, of people putting this image in their mind of, of the failed part just happened. But there's a there's a certain way. Uh, what, what's what would be ideal for you and how do they properly preserve that if they were going to send it to you? Because I know I've been in situations where people, they clean up all the gunk off of it. <laughs> and, you know, it's like wiping away the evidence. And that they, uh, you know, when they have two ends of a shaft, they start putting them together and uh, adding new marks on there. So can, can you give them, uh, our audience, any advice on exactly how to preserve a failed part and send it? Yeah. So, so you know, when a shaft fails and, and you start taking it out, 
Um, the two things you're trying to do is you're trying to avoid mechanical damage. I, I mean, you don't, if you did put the two surfaces together, you're now, you're now rubbing them and you're going to be removing some of the features that become very useful to us. Um, in particular, we're really interested in where the crack starts from. So if you accidentally damage uh, and cause mechanical damage of the initiation site, you, you know, you know there's, there's not going to be a lot left there to analyze. And then the second thing that you're trying to stop is you're trying to stop corrosion. So this, this just takes common sense. Um, if, if, if the shaft, you know, if you remove the shaft, you can keep it in a dry area. Uh, that's, that's going to be very useful. Don't put it out in the yard if it's, if it's something of size. Um, and if you can't guarantee that it's not going to corrode in, 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 the, in the moisture humidity of the air, it's just nice to put a little bit of grease, a little bit of oil on top of that fracture surface. Now, now, if they, uh, if, if these parts are, uh, you know, I, I've been dealing with couplings that they got to put on rail cars. They're they're not going to ship that to you for for things that are not shippable. What is going to be the uh, from a picture standpoint, the the resolutions, angles, and things like that that people that would be ideal for you to have something to start with. If you can't get if the parts are are so big that they can't be uh, prudently shipped. Um, I guess we've never had that problem. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think you can really do fractography or it, it, the science of examining fracture surfaces from pictures. Um, I, I know it comes as a bit of a, you know, as a bit of a catch 22 here. I've written a book that I teach from pictures, how to, uh, <laughs> how, how to, you know, examine fractures, but, but that's the best means I can come up with to teach. But when you're starting to make decisions that affect safety, that affect, you know, reliability, that affect uh, it can cause lost production. People are going to spend a lot of money on solutions. I think that they have to be done in person. And so, um, if if that part is too big, first of all, I, I don't think there's any part that's too big to ship. And I say that because we do we do everything from like you know small pump shafts all the way up to things that fail on freighters uh, and massive you know euclids and 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 things. It's just a matter of where you cut, um, or if you send the person on site to do that original triage. So I, I think, again, in, in the end, you do have to get eyes on. And the people who have eyes on have to have the basics in uh, fractography. Um, I'm not saying that people, I, I, I sorry, I do believe that people in reliability should be developing those basic skills because um, there's a lot that can be done. And then with that, the conversation could be had, hey, massive part failed. I see here the crack starts here. If I can't ship you the whole thing, can I cut out or can we have the conversation of what I can cut? Yeah, but but again, you have to have the initiation site, or else or else right. you're going to be talking about how the crack grew and not why the crack started. Yeah, and like when we're when you're cutting, um, what what's important to keep in mind? Like obviously, you don't want to cut through the failed surface, but is there any other considerations we should have? Like uh, you know, things can get pretty hot when you're cutting. Is is the heat going to affect the surface uh, any meaningful amount or yeah. or anything like that? So. Um, first of all, it's always wise to have that conversation with if you're going to send it to a lab um, and, and try to talk through and come up with this, an important strategy. Um, but but in general, like I mean, it's always ideal to saw cut because you know something that doesn't create a lot of heat, um, and you want to you want to give a good a good amount of space around the fracture if you can, if you can. If you can't saw cut it and you have to flame cut it, okay. Um, but it'd be my advice to add on extra inch or two. So the, there will be spatter, but the spatter usually doesn't cause too much damage. The, the, when, you, when you flame cut, you, you cause about, depending how you do it, about half an inch worth of, uh, worth of thermal damage to the material. 
again, if you cut far enough away from you know the, the, the fracture or from the majority of the initiation region, you're good. But at some point, the lab's also going to want to do some materials testing to make sure that, you know, if, if something did say, like, you know, if we went back to the shaft, the shaft fails by fatigue. Once you diagnose it as fatigue, your next two questions are going to be, well, did it fail by fatigue because the loading was too high? Or did it fail from fatigue because the, the shaft was too weak? There was something wrong with the shaft. For example, you know, uh, geometrical stress concentrators or not the, not the proper material, not the proper strength. Um, going back, if something really large, you're still going to have to do that mechanical testing. And you want to make sure that the material that you do provide has enough material in there that has not been damaged by the flame cutting. So you can, you can get that confirmation that the material is or is not a problem. Yeah, I think that's a, that's some great advice. So we've got the we've got the shaft packaged up. We've got it we've got it sent to you. Now now what do you do with it? Like well, you know, what are some you've talked a little bit about some things you'll see, but uh, and I know you have a whole book on things that you'll see. Um, <laughs> but what are maybe some of the most common things that people can pick up? Um, yeah. So and, and let me answer this slightly different. Um, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to visually examine the part. Okay. Uh, and we're going to clean up the fracture a little bit, and we're going to spend a lot of time doing visual examination. And that visual examination is probably like the, the it, it is the most important step. It, you can get a lot of information that from there you will know whether you have to go left or right in your investigation. And and I don't know how you guys feel, but you guys have read the book. Is that you know with a little bit of training, you guys can pr probably already pick up. I, I don't know if you agree or not, but you can pick up a lot of information. Uh, from that fracture surface with just a little bit of training. And so, you know, two, two examples are on, on a shaft and there's a, you know, first I have to learn how to identify all the details of fatigue. And then once you have that down, you can then learn specific to components. And in the, in the book, there's a, there's a section on shafts. And I, and I tried to break it down to say that, okay, if you have cracking that occurs all the way around the perimeter of it, that means as the shaft rotated, it experienced bending loading on, on one side as it rotates all the way around it and that loading was uniform. And that means you have something stationary pushing on the shaft as it rotates. And that's very easy to see. The second scenario is if you have a problem among the rotating assembly, that every time the shaft rotates only on one side at one time does it experience cyclic loading, your, your fatigue crack will start on one side and grow across. Anyway, I, I might be belaboring the point, but again, I, I believe that in visual examination, that that is always the most critical stage if we're in the lab or in the field to do, and there's a lot of things you can pick up from that. Now, that, that's what I think people can realistically do in the field. Uh, it doesn't have to be in a lab, but when it comes to our lab, what we'll add on to that is we're always interested where the crack starts. We'll always, uh, in our lab, put under electron microscope and crank the magnification up and just be sure the cracking did start by fatigue and there's no other you know, localized corrosion in the area. There's no other stress concentrators that would have been introduced. Um, and if there is, we would investigate that. If there is, you know, we're interested not in, in how the crack grew, we're interested in how the crack started. That is always, you know, the root cause. So if there's some little extra, it started by one one thing, you know, a quality issue, another damage mode, like a, a corrosion cracking or something that that's obvious, and then switches to fatigue, we're always going to pursue that initial damage mode. And then at some point, let's say we come back and we say our shaft is confirmed to have failed by, uh, you know, crack started and then failed by fatigue. Again, it just means the loading was higher than the shaft could sustain is the shaft as strong as it could be, or as strong as it should be. Uh, and then you're gonna to have to do your, your, you know, make sure it's the right material type, make sure you know it's got the right tensile properties. If, if it's big enough, if not, you do hardness tests and you're gonna make sure that you're gonna do uh, optical microscopy. 
and make sure the exact vicinity where the crack started from, there's no, there's no metallurgical deficiency or flaws in the area that might've contributed. Um, and then you're gonna package that all into something that's usable and people can walk away with and saying, ah, I have diagnosed and understand why my shaft failed. And hopefully it's communicated in a way that someone can say, hey, I know what to do next. And I also know if there's other components and shafts like it that are also at risk. If that pump was one of many pumps that you bought at the same time, you're going to have an idea of how to triage those, those shafts, uh, those other pumps, and see whether or not you're at risk of, if they're at risk of failing eventually too. Yeah, absolutely. And nothing makes me happier than taking it back to the OEM and saying, hey, you gave us a bad shaft. <laughs> Coming, speaking from the end user perspective, I'm sure everybody, anybody working for the OEM is very much on the opposite side. It's always the, the, the operations fault, right? So, you know, that kind of brings me into the, the next area then. So we've got these, we've got these results. We've got Shane's analysis, Bob. And now what? Now what do we do with it? So we, we know the shaft failed. There was a, a material defect just at the crack, um, crack initiation point. There was some I don't know, an inclusion or something in the shaft. Well, I mean, I, I wanted to ask a question before we moved on. Sh oh, Shane, yeah, what, 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 what percentage of the time uh, will a visual uh, observation do for you as opposed to having it go into the uh, higher technologies like scanning electron microscopy and the one you were talking about? So it's not a fair question because no one sends it to a lab and only asks it to do visual. And, and frankly, we would not take that job, you know, where we would, mm -hmm. you know, you send it to it like us because we're going to do everything and we would never write a, you know, a final report just off doing visual. I, I think though that there's a massive gap and, and, you know, we've all talked about this is that there's a lot of failure, a lot of like RCA um, that's not including metallurgical failure analysis. They're not sending out to a lab. Right. And I, and I, I think that, you know, maybe a whole separate podcast should be, do you, you know, do you, you know, should people be doing that? And I, I would argue that if it's worth the five to $8,000, it should be, but I, I want to be clear that, you know, if you're not going to send it to a lab and, and, you know, even though that's our best recommendation is there's an in-between and, and we recognize that there's a lot of RCA and a lot of reliability efforts being out there where they're not sending it to labs. And if they're not sending it to labs, okay, but you cannot investigate, have a murder investigation and completely ignore the body. You're going to have to have some analysis of that body. And if you're not going to send it to the full, you know, the full forensics, okay. Um, but have at least one or two guys on staff that have a little bit of training that can look at that shaft and be like, yeah, we are familiar that this is a fatigue crack and we, we can, we can pick out if it's, if the, if the, the loading responsible for failure is amongst a stationary component, you know, uh, if, if it's, if it's amongst the rotating assembly, like misalignment, bench shaft, sorry, yeah, bench, bench shaft, misalignment, coupling, some of that, or is it a torsional issue where what it's driving is pushing back too hard on it? And, and that alone will mean that the success of the remainder of your RCA is going to be greatly increased. And, and to, to finish the question uh, for, that you asked, Steve, is, I, I don't disagree with anything that uh, Shane is saying. Uh, and he, uh, that, that there's thousands of people that do RCAs and that don't go to a lab. And that's not always the, uh, the, the, the analyst's fault because the, you, you got to play the hand you're dealt in the, in the, in the field. And, you know, the, your, your leadership's not going to let you go out there and spend that money. I disagree with that myself for when it's needed. 
but uh, certainly uh, from our from our standpoint as lead investigators, that that is what we would like to happen, ideally. But we're not always in control of that, and that's why I was pressing that question: is to say, you know, you're you're always going to leave something on the table if you don't validate it with certainty through a lab like uh, Shane. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, but that's the uh, and, and Shane can correct me on this if if, uh, if we have different interpretations, but the. The difference between a failure analysis and a root cause analysis is the, 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 the depth of the analysis. Now, uh, the physics of why something fails is, is what his, uh, Shane's specialty is. I mean, he, he deals with the, the, the physical components, the physical equipment, and understanding the, uh, the physics around why something fails. Uh, but beneath that, there's always going to be some human influence that triggered those forces that uh, you know that may have prematurely caused that uh, component to fail, and uh, that's part of our role. Is that you know we need we, we see failure analysis as being a, a critical component of a root cause analysis. A root cause of a failure analysis has a mechanical context to it, whereas root cause analysis you know I I can do that on injuries, I can do it on fatalities, I could do it on why uh, administrative systems fail. So it's not always a mechanical bad outcome, but when we, uh, the majority of what we do has mechanical bad outcomes. Uh, but, the, but beneath that mechanical bad outcome, there's, there's always some type of human influence that, that triggered uh, those physical forces to occur. So that what we deal with is getting into the social science side and not blaming the decision maker but say, why did that person think it was the right thing to do that day, that decision that they made, which may have created those forces, which may have, they didn't weld it correctly, you know, they, uh, they didn't align it properly. So that's, you know, we're dealing a lot with the, the why humans do what they do that cause parts to be sent to Shane. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. So like, you know, um, and again, this is just my perspective. Uh, and I think, it, you know, if, if, if you don't do the lab analysis or, or you don't diagnose yourself uh, with, some, with some degree of certainty, it could mean that the remainder of the RCA investigation is chasing the wrong, the wrong problem. Uh, and then if you spend a lot of time and energy and you know, there, there might be a little bit of finger pointing at some point, because you know, at some point you have to figure out you know, where to change that behavior. Um, it, could be a, it could be for the, at the wrong place or the wrong reason. So, yeah, definitely like the, you know, the physical evidence is just to make sure the remainder of the RCA is addressing the actual problem. Yeah. And so just to talk about, let's talk about this a little bit more, I think, because it is an important part of getting, um, getting things over the line is when we're, how, how do we move from that space of this $5,000 analysis or, or $8,000 analysis is too expensive to, it's, this is a no-brainer. This is this is how we do business. How do we change that mindset? So, like, we have our, our shaft, um, our input shaft example. Um, you know, I'm working at a mine. We've just failed the pump. It's expensive, and now you're trying to tell me to spend money, spend more money than we already have to find out to find out more information that you know. You're an engineer. You should be able to figure it out, kind of thing, right? So, how do we how do we get past that mindset, and how do we convince the the people with the money um, to let us send those parts out? 
Shane, do you want to go first or do you want me to? <laughs> oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm actually, this is my question to you guys. I, I, um, I, I just think it's kind of obvious. I, I think it, the question would be is, you know, how, how like, why, why is it not being done already? Like, you know, like it, it just logically makes sense. You know, like if we, if it was, if we were looking anywhere else, if we were looking at doctors that did not take the time to properly diagnose, you know, that they would maybe do a visual examination of a patient and then say, you know, you might have cancer, you might not. I'm not going to take the time to figure out what kind of cancer. I'm just not going to send it to a lab. I'm not going to do any more investigation beyond what I know myself or what I can see, you know, with my own eyes. I don't need to send it to the lab. I, I think if we were looking at that profession, we'd be like, ah, you know, maybe it's worth sending it to the lab to make sure that the treatment, that the life-altering drugs you're about to give, you know, it's either going to help or hurt it is actually the right solution for that problem. Um, so, I, I mean, to me, it sounds obvious, but I, I, I'd be really interested in people and reliability and what, and what other people have to say about that. Well, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this in healthcare for about 20 years, and I can tell you that there's a lot of, all doctors are well-intentioned, but that insurance company will have a say in whether you're going to be able to do that test or not. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always bring out when managers do this uh, in, in the course of what I do, the, uh, I always use the uh, the phrase, we never seem to have the time and budget to do it right, but we always seem to have the time and budget to do it again. So while, <laughs> while, they're, while they're involved with saying, you know, I can't, I can't afford to, uh, to use Shane's service for $8,000 to make sure it doesn't happen again, but I can pay for it when it does happen again. <laughs> So, you know, the, the, those are a lot of the things that we have to do. And, and I have that big problem because uh, I, I'm an advocate of doing RCA on the on the chronic stuff in addition to the sporadic stuff that, you know, the sporadic stuff typically comes to you is that, you know, they, they've had a significant uh, severity, uh, an outage of some type or whatever. But it's it's you've got all sorts of support for analyses that come to your plate. Whereas those chronic things that happen every shift and don't even make it into the CMMS system, if you if you aggregate them over a year, uh, based on time, uh, on labor, on uh, uh, the the material, the parts, and the production losses, they far outweigh any of those sporadic things. But because they didn't hit a trigger, nobody cares. They 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 actually put those in the budget under the routine category, and it becomes a cost of doing business. It's not even a failure anymore. It's my job. It's my turn to go ahead and fix this. So trying to get support for somebody to send you parts that are failing. Uh, so sometimes it's every shift. Sometimes it's uh, it's once a month, four times a year. Uh, it, it, on their individual occurrence, nobody cares. But uh, but uh, that that type of thing, if it's happening that often, you know, the the your your go to is often always going to be, well, the, I didn't collect the failed parts this time, but don't worry, give it a week, <laughs> because I'm going to have another one. <laughs> you know, could could it also be part of like part of it? People don't know what they can get from you know examining fracture surfaces from what Absolutely. a lab can provide from a sample. Um, I think sometimes people think labs all we do is check to see if the part you know is as wrong as it should be. Uh, versus the, you know, the most key part of the failure analysis is understanding that the damage mode, including, including not just, not just diagnosing fatigue, but trying to match up, well, if it is fatigue, what is the source of loading or at least describe the loading that's responsible for it. I, I don't know if a lot of people know what it can, 
And then our own internal experience has been, my experience has been, is that um, usually when we come into a new company that doesn't have a lot of experience with it, is we get their small problems at first. And it's, you know, they get the small problem and then they build up trust with you. Uh, and if any moment you were to, I presume if any moment you were to break that trust, you wouldn't get to the big problems. Um, but it, but it seems like you have to build that trust. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, when I started 20 years ago in this, it was interesting watching reliability, trying to convince maintenance people that, that it was money well spent. That, you know, maintenance guys who react and are reacting to the problems or just have, you know, very, very scheduled maintenance thing. Reliability was trying to convince, to convince them and, and rightfully so that, you know, you need people who are proactive. You need people who are looking at things before they fail and when they do fail, doing that thorough investigation so we can figure out the root cause of it. I almost feel like the, the, next, and the next step would be, well, maybe, maybe the metallurgy community has to be convincing the reliability people, like how the reliability wants to convince the maintenance people that it's, it's, just, it's just the obvious and it's time, it's time and money well spent. We need more uh, metallurgists and reliability, right? <laughs> we do. We do. You know, my, my, my biggest takeaway from Shane's book and, and really why I got on the, the Shane bandwagon was, you know, it, it, was, it was how well it was written and the, and the graphics were superb. But the biggest takeaway I, gave, I got from that was that the crafts, this is what the crafts need to understand is that they, they, need, they need to understand what he's capable of doing. If they, uh, because most of the time it's a broken part, you know, and it goes into a trash can. And uh, if, uh, if, I, if that book, if they were to read that book and look at all those images, because they're essentially first responders, they're, they're gonna see those parts first. And, and if they see, if they understand the science behind what you can read from a fractured surface, that changes their perspective immensely. Now they're gonna take an interest in making the call themselves on that part. They're gonna say, well, you know, I was reading that book and there was under these circumstances, you know, this, um, I'm seeing this pattern on here. And, uh, it, you know, they know that they're not the expert, but they're gonna be really interested in what Shane comes up with to say, was I close? And that, that's really what you want, the turnaround that you want from a paradigm shift is that you want them curious about why that part failed instead of saying operations needs to get up and I need to clean the area. So I, I think that that's the, the, the training that, that uh, leadership has to have as well, is that they, that, you know, they have to, uh, because if it's nice to know and it's not a requirement to pick up those parts, then, you know, I, I can't get in trouble for throwing them away. But if it's part of a, a procedure that under these conditions, uh, we have to go ahead and uh, collect these parts and we have to stage them in a certain area in a certain way, uh, then it becomes part of the procedure to do that. So that, that's, you know, for, from my standpoint, uh, it's not only the crafts that have to learn that, it's the leadership that has to learn that. Uh, we used to do uh, a lot of work with a particular oil company and uh, what they did, they had internal metallurgists at, at the corporate level. And what we did, we suggested to them as part of our reliability surveys was that you need to go out and do two hour classes just on the appreciation of the most common fracture patterns. Hmm. And uh, that, that had an immense uh, change in, uh, from a paradigm shift standpoint and that organization because people then started to take a genuine interest in why they should collect the part. Don't just collect it and don't give me a reason. Tell me why I should be collecting it. 
So I, th- you know, I, w- I would advise that uh, to, to any industry uh, is that if you have internal metallurgists, get, 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 a two, get a two hour course together. And if not, go to people like uh, Shane and uh, tr- try to uh, educate your people. I see, a, I see a webinar series coming up here, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, this is maybe a little off topic, but um, th- this whole book came around in conjunction with, we, we actually built this, what I think was like the best course to teach how to, you know, people how to actually learn fractures. But, and what we did is we just, we just collected like almost a hundred failures we dump them on the desk and we just teach people from this, how to, how to examine fractures. And that naturally came to the book as well. Um, and I was really excited for this and then COVID hit yeah. and there yeah. was, and there was no more in-class training. And so uh, we, we are going to be doing an online course uh, in conjunction with the book. Um, I, I'm pretty excited for it actually. And, and I, again, you might cut this out in the, in the real thing, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's really neat because like what, what I've done is, um, is you get the book, obviously, uh, and then we mail with it a workbook that just has like dozens and dozens of, of pictures of fractures that, you know, at first it's like, this is ductile. You have to decide if it's ductile or brittle and mark it up. And then it, it, evol- it evolves into, okay. But if I also give you this information, if you also now know it's ductile, which, not, which means that the loading was greater than the strength of it. Well, here's some of the information we have. It, it, the design required this strength. Here's the results we got. You decide why it failed. Um, and I think it's going to be a pretty neat, uh, uh, course, uh, especially, you know, it being online, but I think it's going to be a really practical way to, to both one, learn the basics to it. And then you're right, you're right. It'll give you the global, you know, if I, if I can recognize this ductile failure, here are the next obvious steps I need to understand was it because the part was too weak. I just need to get a test of that at a lab and do this, 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 this. And then that will help me know whether it was a, a quality issue with the part or there's some event that happened in service that was far too extreme for what this park is sustained. I, yeah, I, I got to tell a story. I got to tell a story here, Steve, that, uh, <laughs> that he, that he triggered, you know, we, we have a basics, uh, you know, like metallurgy 101, j- just for that appreciation purpose. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my brother uh, taught that class live and, and he, 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 uh, just like you described, uh, he, he was the kind who's got parts on his, um, his fireplace <laughs> mantle because uh, you know they're, 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 they're these prizes with the best patterns and everything. But he had all of the you know his his boxes of parts that all had a story behind them, and and they would travel with him to his courses. And uh, he went to Mexico, and then uh, on customs after he did the class on customs on the way back, the, they saw him as a bunch of broken parts and they threw him away. <laughs> oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> having, they didn't have an appreciation. <laughs> they said, "Well, damn, who wants a box of broken parts?" <laughs> it's funny. I have a, I had a a supervisor, or um, I'm not sure if they listen to this, but if they do, I, they'll know exactly what I'm talking. Uh, they'll remember <laughs> this story because I I'm I'm that person. I love having broken broken things on my desk. I I always have. Um, you know, whatever it is. And I love when people walk into my office and ask, what's that? And I'm like, well, do you have an hour? Cause you're going to, uh, you've just asked a question and you've taken an hour of your time now. And, <laughs> and this supervisor would always come in and he had, his desk was, had nothing on it. Like there was, he had one piece of paper, which was his schedule for the day. And that was all that was ever on his desk. And then you come into mine and there's, you know, a broken ball joint here, or, uh, pieces of a shaft here, some bearings over here. And he's like, 
you got to clean up this office. It is the biggest disaster I've ever seen. I can't handle it. And she, <laughs> anyways, I'm like, sorry, this is, <laughs> this is how I work. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we have the same problems when, uh, when, you know, you have so many failures of a specific kind and the mechanic gets really good at fixing it is that, you know, he, he's getting accolades and pats on the back because it used to be four hours to get back up and now it only takes two. He, he's a hero. He's a, <laughs> and, and, you know, our point is a progressive management would say, why is he getting so much practice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I do, I do want to uh, jump back j just a minute and like, you know, we're, we, we were talking about um, getting, what we need to do to get uh, parts actually sent to the lab. How do we convince people? And I think, you, you know, when we talk about shallow cause analysis versus um, deep cause analysis, I guess, uh, you, you talk about that a lot, Bob, and, and we're talking about being able to validate our results. Now, can somebody, can a person on site looking at it, and, and you know, we've got your book so we can get dangerous, um, but can we truly validate what happened with those parts from what we see on site or or you know and i imagine there's a bit of you can't just read a book and get all the answers you you you're looking for right like you need somebody to say like ah, i'm a i went to school for metallurgy and materials engineering and you know we take a fail failure analysis course i, I did a few courses w within the same same realm but even then you know we've got bad labs and, and good labs there's there's varying quality so even the people that are going through the training um at an academic level still can't always figure out what is going on with it so where is um i guess what i'm trying to go with this question is is can we trust like it's great to get that initial um i think this is it but we need to build up confidence within those people's ability to look at a failure. Um, I'm not sure what you guys think of that, but is it is it validation if um, I go and look at a piece and I say, I think it's this? Is that good enough for, for a validation step? Or do we need that lab analysis to hit that validation step? Let, let me take this one first, and then you can get the final say, Bob. Um, so, so first of all, there, I mean, there's, there's no way to get more information than sending it to a lab. You know, like that's just, it's just it. They've just got all the tools. It's what they do. It's their expertise. Um, if you get, if you get a good, good sound lab, um, they'll be able to take that broken part and give you more information from it than just looking at it ever will. Uh, and I, I, I think everyone can under, can appreciate that, especially when it comes to things like you know corrosion mechanisms. And that like you're going to have to analyze the corrosion product. To understand what the, the relevant corrosion agents are that caused that caused that failure. Um, so so yeah, I, I I think you have to have that. I you know the the trust thing is a is a separate issue, and I have my own bias. Um, I I wish that my industry had a had a had a more of a higher standard. I, I think that you're right that you can go to good good different labs and you can get a variety of it. And sometimes some bad labs bring you know bring you know bad they they don't help our reputation and they might you know people might try a lab and if the lab comes back with something that's not immediately useful or they look at it and be like, ah, that, that can't be, that can't be relevant. Um, people, people won't try. They won't keep continue trying. You can only get burned so many times. Now, 
going going back, I I still think that there is there is a a skill gap that I don't want to ignore. Like someone says, you know, you have to always send it to a lab, and the answer is, well, if if it's going to be you know a a, a certain threshold of price or safety, um, it's probably recommended. And again, I I've just thrown out the number five to eight, just because every lab will have different pricing, but like that's a decent number to start with on average size parts to come back and say, is it worth this? You know, because we've lost half a million, quarter million, or a million in lost production, and we don't want that to happen again. Safety factors in that. But I, I still, I still want to. I don't want to. I don't want people to say, ah, let's send it to the lab. We don't need to have. We don't need to have any more training or an appreciation of what what this can be. Um, and so, coming back to the rotating shaft, I still think if if someone is a rotating engineer and spends thirty years of their career doing, you know, dealing with rotating shaft failures that they should get basic training um, in that. So that way, when, when time is urgent and they're, they're, they're looking on it and they're making decisions right away and they're going to go evaluate all the other background data they might have is that they can look at it and go, ah, it is related to a stationary component or no, it is amongst the rotating assembly. And that way, when you sort through the data, you can hone in a lot quicker on what that root cause might be. Another example I'll throw in here real quick is um, I, I put a section of bolts in here. And, and I like this section because bolts are one of those things that fail. And a lot of times, because it's only a bolt, it's not investigated. And so I put a section and a lot of people don't know is that if you pick a bolt off the ground and you look at it and it's fatigued and you can, you have to be able to make sure it's fatigued, you know, diagnose it visually. And then secondly, if you can, if you can assess um, from that fracture, surface, you can assess if the loading on it had been excessive or, or if it had been tightly installed and maintained its proper preload, it would never have failed. I think that's a scenario that a lot of people in reliability maintenance might not investigate. And that might be a scenario that you actually might be able to get enough onsite to make, to make the call yourself. That if, if in the end, it looks like it hadn't been installed tightly because it has a very small, what we call final failure zone in the fracture surface, that might be enough to investigate, well, why wasn't it installed tightly? And then you would, you would start going down the path that Rob would talk about, um, about what were the human factors that led it so that that bolt either that time or systematically was not being installed tightly. Yeah, absolutely. My, my, and, my answer, go ahead, Steve. No, you go first, Bob. <laughs> well, I have to write it down because otherwise I'm gonna forget. So hold on a second. <laughs> the, uh, I, to answer that question, I, I think, because I, I, I feel like I probably play a lot more in the politics of RCA because when I'm getting down into those human systems, that there's a, there's a lot more uh, of politics involved, and a lot of sensitivities to setting up of uh, procedures and incentive systems, and uh, you know OEM uh, claims and things like that. But I think there's a direct correlation between the severity of the incident and how many times they get sent to a lab, because if uh, I call them suits analysis, if if a suit so sh shows up at your analysis, then you're likely going to have some type of uh, a, a lawyer involved, a OEM involved, a uh, uh, outside forces, an insurance company could be involved, and they're, they're, they're much more likely to do third-party independence and, and require his, uh, Shane's type of uh, in-depth analysis to be done. But the, you know, the realities are for the non-suit ones is that you've, you've got to fight. It's hard enough to get them to do with RCA, <laughs> but much less to do it right. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody, unfortunately, is at the at the field level is going to have to play the hand they're dealt. 
So if they're not going to let me send it out each time for five to eight thousand dollars, then they should at least give me minimal education in being able to uh, notice the, the the most common patterns. Uh, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I'm saying it happens every day where people have to make those kind of choices, and they they know that they're not going to uh, you know Steve for for the uh, say axle failures <laughs> on on the mobile equipment and say how how often that these things are happening and say are we going to send it out every single time? It's it, it you know. I mean, the fact that they won't even save them before they throw them away will answer that for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they're just going to put a, they're going to put a new axle on it. <laughs> you know, and I I think you're right. Like when the the suits show up, um, or you know, injury, or you know, whatever it is, um, regulatory violation. Yeah, then they're going to need third party analysis for sure because no nobody's going to trust the guy on site to be impartial. Um, right. And then, you know, the other aspect of that that I've seen is warranty as well. So like, you know, if I'm if I'm fighting warranty with a vendor, I don't want the vendor to do my <laughs> my metallurgical analysis because again, right. it's biased. They're not going to want me to just eyeball it either and throw Let them under guess. the bus. It's so that's, not their fault. <laughs> it, it's well, and it's definitely not my fault either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, that you know, that's where that's where the the labs that's where i jump right away because whenever i get involved in a warranty thing i'm like okay we're sending it to a third-party lab because nobody else is gonna um they're not gonna trust us we're not gonna trust them and you know for this relationship because at the end of the day you're partners with your vendors for this relationship to continue uh being a productive one we need this third party instead of finger pointing at each other and then you know when we're, we're thinking about chronic failures i and you know tell me if I'm wrong, but maybe they're generally lower risk, the individual failures. So to take it and, you know, start trying your skills at, uh, at, uh, you know, just using the books and stuff and not going to a, a, um, a lab, I think that's kind of the ideal place to start because, you know, you're looking at generally bolts that keep cracking in the same spot or, or breaking in the same spot. And the failure's already been normalized so that, you know, you can start looking at it and then put your assumptions in and then try and make changes based off that. And then if you keep seeing the issue, think, you know, that's when you can look at sending it out and seeing if, hey, maybe there's something else going on here that we can't see. We need the electron microscope to, to look at. I don't know if that's a, a, an approach for somebody that's having a hard time getting stuff out to a lab, but. Um. Well, I think I think we spend a lot of time working on what's urgent and not what, on what's important. And, uh, and a lot of times in, in the course of our work, that those chronic failures left unattended, you, you find them uh, as contributors to the major things because you ignored them. And, uh, you know, you just have to find out through, uh, you know, a, a bad outcome that happens. Uh, you know, now you're now you're paying for it. But there, there's definitely less attention less resources and less urgency involved with chronic failures because uh, on their individual occurrence, they've been accepted as a cost of doing business and you just get really good at fixing them over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we are running a bit out of time. Um, just thinking about the, the tail end of that. Um, um, once we get the results back from Shane, you know, like you said there, Bob, we go into, you start to look at the, you've got the physical roots, you understand how it failed. Now it's time to look at why we made the decisions we made. 
Now, and, and we don't need to go into too much detail here because I think we, we've talked about this a few times and I think we talked about it a few weeks ago. But, you know, when we're looking, start looking at those human roots, what are, you know, some things we definitely need to keep, keep in mind and some, uh, you know, the things that come, come to mind immediately are, are, are worrying about blaming somebody or, and stuff like that. How do, we, how do we go about making sure that people aren't thrown under the bus? I think that the, first of all, there's a there's a line between uh, we said this earlier between a, a failure analysis and root cause analysis because uh, the step one would be that someone's got to want to go and look for the human stuff because oftentimes we will just replace the parts. Uh, you know, we may assign a contribution to an OEM or to uh, to whoever or the supplier, uh, but you know that that will in a Am I correct in, in a failure analysis, Shane, that that would conclude the physics side of it? Correct. And so if a, if a shaft was misaligned and that kind of thing, but it wouldn't discuss why the shaft was misaligned. Right. And then that's where if you're doing, from, from my uh, nomenclature, that if, if you're doing a, an effective RCA, the next step is naturally to go ahead and explore deeper and say, well, why? Because there's always going to be someone or a group that has made choices that resulted in those physical things happening. Now, uh, you know, we we class these as human roots and uh, and latent roots, but the the human root is strictly the decision maker. It's it's a choice uh, to make a decision to do or not do something. And that's and and you know, we never you know, I'd rather just don't do it. Stop at the broken part if you're gonna if you uh, don't use RCA as a weapon and go ahead and blame somebody because unless you're going deeper, you shouldn't even stop there. So the the goal has to be to understand why that person on that day thought it was the right thing to do. It's not that you know they didn't come to work and that's how they feed their family and they sit there and, and they say, you know, I'm really gonna screw it up at the plant today. <laughs> well, watch me make this fail. And that's not that's not what they do. I mean, that's how I feed my family. So now, I, why did that person in that and putting yourself in that position without the you know uh, hindsight bias is uh, why did that person think it was the right thing to do? Because I guarantee you, in most cases, anybody else in the same position would have made the same decision if they were if they were under the same conditions and pressures and uh, you know whatever the uh, the load was that day that they were running. But, uh, you know, people take, when, they, when you're time pressured to do anything, people take shortcuts. And when you, when you uh, continually are taking a shortcut and then nothing bad happens, that becomes, you've eroded the standard away because, uh, you know, I've taken a shortcut, it takes less time, I'm getting pats on the back, uh, but you're also eroding your safety margins. And, and then you're being applauded for it. And then, then you have a disaster and then you be, you went from a hero to a zero in a matter of uh, five seconds, <laughs> because the same decisions you were making before are, are that worked for you. There was something different that day that that now it's working against you, and uh, you have to be able to get into the systems that supported that. You know where was the management oversight on all the times that I was getting away with that and getting accolades? Well, why wasn't uh, somebody telling me that I was not following the procedure? You know, those are the systemic type things that, that we're, we're talking about getting into. And I think that, uh, you know, um, one of these that I'm preparing for next week, one of the questions was, uh, you know, what, what can management do? What are the top three things that management need to do to have an exemplar program? Well, one of them is to look in the mirror and say, I'm part of the problem. 
you know that, that that's that's a reality is to say that that management systems contributed to this failure it is what it is whatever the evidence says and that we had a contribution to this failure because we accepted uh, we had oversight of the behaviors in the field and we were applauding these uh the skipping of these steps and uh and we, we were being hypocrites when we go ahead and discipline people for doing the same thing on that day when something else was different i mean even the the overused challenger when you look at that uh example you know the the, the failure mechanism was always there it, it happened on 15 of previous 25 missions but on that given day, it was 36 degrees. That, that was the only different factor because uh, it had it been 36 degrees on any other day, it would have happened because the mechanism was latent. It was always there. The design flaw was there. So, uh, you know, holding the people accountable, uh, you know, uh, on launch day at 36 degrees, you know, that, that's, a, that's a different issue because was there criteria that said I violated a rule by uh, going, uh, launching at a lower temperature? There's a whole, if you, if you follow that, there's a whole video on that too. But uh, my, my point is, it's, it's not the decision maker, it's the reason for the decision. That, that's what RCA is about to me. It's understanding the reasoning of why somebody thought it was the right thing to do that day. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, every time you get on a soapbox, uh, Bob, we always just sit and listen because it, it's always a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been in COVID too long. That, that, that soapbox can't support my weight anymore. Steve. <laughs> I'm sure your wife is tired of hearing about it too. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that's a, you know, that that's a really important factor when we're looking at any sort of failure and, you know, we get the answers for the physical problem and, and what happened with the component, but we need to, we, we need to figure out how to address what led up to that physical, those physical conditions that could lead to that failure. And if we just stop at the at the physical, at the the failure analysis level, we're we're not going to improve. You know, it's going to come out with, well, we need to we need a stronger shaft. We need this. We need this. But you know, we need to look critically. Well, did we does pick a pump that was designed properly for this application? Did we adjust our application? Are we running something else through it? Is there more slurry? I don't know, whatever it might be. Um, and we need to understand those decisions properly because you know, at the end of the day, these decisions are gonna be made again. And if we don't have processes in place to make a better decision next time on, hey, maybe we need to pick a better pump or, or think about, okay, this is what the plan is to go through this pump today, is it always going to be that case? Or, you know, I've seen people too where they you they'll just look at that the max um, the max pressure output or something of the pump, and like these design choices throughout um, the life cycle of of your facility or your operation or or even just the components. Like, are we going to be doing the same thing with them? And and have we thought about that? So I'll get off my soapbox now. Well, I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a questioning mindset. You got to be uh, you got to have a, a questioning attitude, and people can't get pissed off for it, is because uh, you know when you're looking at uh, defect eliminations coming back is, is a big term, and you, you look at uh, whether it's lubricants or whether it's parts that come in. Oftentimes, we have a paradigm that says that you know we get what we pay for. 
Well, nobody is really checking it unless you're checking at receiving the quality of what you're getting. I can assure you that, the, that they're going to slip stuff by the people that aren't checking. The ones who are checking are going to get who they want or what they want. The ones who aren't checking are going to get what the others rejected. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that numerous times now because while uh, purchasing is getting uh, bonuses based on the, the reducing the uh, expenses of parts, uh, you know, maintenance costs are going up because I'm, I'm introducing the defects into the systems because we're getting poor quality stuff and we're not checking that, you know, when we were in the field in the reliability area uh, as, a, as a corporation, uh, that was one of the reliability department's jobs is uh, the, the quality of uh, receiving is that you had to validate that, what, uh, you know, you did sampling at first, but if you found anything within the sample, then you did 100 percent, you know, the 5 percent sample. So uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of this, uh, it, it's a mind, it, it's, a, uh, it's a reliability mindset, is that you have to look at failure in its, in its uh, holistically and say that there is a physics phase, but it's triggered by a human phase, which is triggered by the systems that uh, help people make better decisions. And, you know, nobody's, I hope nobody's foolish enough to think that our systems are flawless because <laughs> they're made by us too. So... Uh, you know, we, we have to be able to go ahead and acknowledge that management systems uh, are, are the base, often the basis of how people make decisions and that we want them to. But uh, when they're not kept up and we bring in new technologies, we're part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think with that, we're, we're going to have uh, to end the show. We do have a little bit of time, though, for a couple of, of plugs. So I know... Uh, Shane, you did give a, a couple throughout, um, but is there anything you want to uh, plug specifically? You know, we've got your book right in front of us, Decoding Mechanical Failures, which I imagine is available on, I think it's available on Amazon. And, yep. uh, and uh, but is there anything else in there? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, this, this is not meant to be a shameless plug. This is what I believe and this is why I wrote it. Um, I, I think that there is a big gap in, in, not a big gap. There, there is a, a gap in the skill gap um, of people who are investigating failures. I think that they can really benefit from having a bit more skills in being able to examine fracture, uh, fracture features. And, and I, I think anyone familiar with fractography will look back and say, yes, that's true. And I think the reason why it's existed is that there has been no book in the past that people could pick up that was easy to read and gave a really good introduction on the very basics of here's, here's the features you look for, here's several examples, and when you do diagnose as that failure mode, here's what it means. Um, I know that 20 years ago, I wish I had read that book, uh, but it didn't exist. And so I hope the industry will consider this to be a great opportunity to have that accessible to them and then add it to their collection of other RCA and failure analysis books that are already out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and great. you can find a, a, I'll put a link to uh, the Amazon for your book there in the, the podcast description so people can find it and then the posts on LinkedIn as well. Uh, now, now, Bob, is there anything that you wanted to plug? Well, you could probably just take it from the last podcast, Dave. <laughs> the, uh, my usuals are reliability.com for the, uh, the company offerings and things like that. The, uh, the RCA tools are on easyrca.com. And for a holistic view of RCA, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, Shane's book would be a, uh, an element of our total RCA approach. 
is that that uh, root cause analysis, whatever it says, improving performance for bottom line results, uh, that, that'll show you how this all comes together. And uh, if there's any questions, that's not me on the cover when I was growing up. <laughs> the, the diapers would have had to have been elastic. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've actually got that book right beside me as well. So uh, both great resources. I've read both. And um, for any for any reliability personnel or even maintenance um that should definitely be in your bookshelf. So, so thank you guys for, for sharing your knowledge. Really great to have you on. And, and yeah, well, I'm sure we'll be, we have both of you on the show sooner than later as well. Again, 